Hey there, Conquerors, and welcome to episode 144 of the Conquering Columbus podcast. Today on the show, we've got Ruth Milligan joining us, and Ruth has an incredible history in the speech and marketing communication space. And today she spends her time coaching executive communication and presentations as the founder and director of Articulation. In this episode, we talk about everything from how to create a great story to the process of founding your own business. And we even spend a little time on the dangers of internal bias and bias in our algorithms. You definitely don't want to miss this episode. And as always, we hope you learn a lot. Before we get to that, though, we want to take a quick moment to thank some of our sponsors here at Conquering Columbus. And that's going to start with FMX. FMX is a cloud-based facilities maintenance and management software founded and headquartered right here in Columbus, Ohio. There's a lot of competitors in this space, but FMX has made a name for itself, become the fastest-growing facilities maintenance and management software on the market on behalf of its extreme ease of use and tailored-fit approach to its clients. They serve industries ranging from education to property management, manufacturing, fast casual, and more. If you want to check out more, you can go to gofmx.com. Conquering Columbus is also brought to you in part by the Sundown Group. The Sundown Group is an Ohio-based nonprofit helping connect entrepreneurs to everything they need, including investors, mentors, capital, and talent through business pitch events, workshops, and classes throughout the state. And you can get more information on the web at sundownrundown.org. And our last sponsor is Small Biz Cares. Small Biz Cares is a nonprofit founded by socially conscious community leaders here in Columbus, and their goal is to connect, mobilize, and inspire small businesses to create lasting positive impact in our community. And Small Biz Cares members have the unique opportunity to join like-minded businesses to raise money for great causes, participate in large-scale volunteer efforts, and improve educational opportunities for youth in our community. To get your small business involved or to learn more, visit smallbizcares.org. That is smallbizcares.org. Finally, if you've ever wondered what it takes to start your own podcast, we're here to help. We're putting together a podcast startup package with our recommendations and some of the key lessons we learned over the past two years of podcasting. You can sign up by heading over to our website, conqueringcolumbus.com. And while you're there, don't forget to give us a like on Facebook and be sure to subscribe and share Conquering Columbus wherever you get your podcasts. All right, Conquerors, let's get the show on the road. You could drop me anywhere on the planet, in any environment, and I might get you know, my head kicked in in the beginning, but I'll find a way to survive. I'll find a way to get the job done. Yeah, there's a little doubt, but you know what? Once again, I think of that guy in my ear. I think about stepping up to the stage. I think about the challenge. Like, I've lost sometimes, but I've won more than I've lost. And so like, I bet on me any day. Choosing greatness. Greatness doesn't choose you. You know, you have to choose it. And yeah, it's hard. I think there was a hunger in me. There was a desire just to make a difference. There was a desire to not just be status quo, a desire to not be average. This is Conquering Columbus. Hey there, Conquerors, and welcome to another episode of Conquering Columbus. Today on the show, we're excited to have Ruth Milligan joining us, and Ruth is the founder and managing director of Articulation. Ruth founded Articulation after producing the first TEDx Columbus event in 2009, and she was looking for speaking and presentation coaches to help train the next group of speakers, and after coming up dry, she decided to create Articulation. She and her team coach and train inside executive communication for both teams and individuals and having had the chance to be involved with one of those sessions Josh and I can both vouch for the success and improvement we've seen after just one day with Ruth and her team and we're really excited to have her here on the show welcome to Conquering Columbus Ruth thanks so much for having me it's delightful to be back yeah so we appreciate you joining us at the end of the day and have a conversation and talk about everything going on at articulation but one of the first places we kind of like to start is we want to kick it back talk a little bit about everything leading up to articulation and that starts all the way back to childhood and any important details along the way such as where you went to school and interesting experiences there. Sure so it's awesome to be with you guys again we had a great day a few weeks ago so it's fun to see you apply what we worked on. This is our highest pressure episode we're sitting up we're both straighter than we've ever said. You're gonna hear a great uh, voice improvement tonight everyone. So 
The influence in my life around speaking really came from my father, and most people that know me know that he was a big part of my growing up. Obviously, he's my father, but he was uh, in the legislature before I was born. And then we moved to Columbus in 1970, so I was two. So I'm one of those folks that actually grew up with the city, which has been a lot of fun. And I got dragged to more rotary luncheons and other different groups he belonged to to hear talks. And every week, he'd give me the pamphlet from the last event that he went to. And we talked politics all the time at the dinner table. So we were reading the paper. He only read The Economist, didn't read any other weekly publications. He was an idea guy and a thinker. That was his sport. He didn't really play any sports. In my household, my mother would watch the sports, and my dad would be playing chess by himself. So that was sort of the environment that I grew up in. So when I went away to college, and I didn't get into business school, because I didn't have good enough grades to get into Miami's business school, and getting into Miami was another story, I just landed in speech communication, and it was the first A that I ever got in any class in my entire life was SpeechCom 101. And I thought, okay, maybe that's it. So I finally had my moment, my true north moment, freshman year in Oxford. And then the rest has really been a slow progression, building on that for almost the last 34 years. And any siblings growing up? Was it just you, your father, and your mother? I have two much older sisters. One is 10 years older, Edie, and one is eight years older, Martha. And I was at the event last night at um, the Rife Center, the Philanthropitch event, and somebody came up to me and said, are you Edie? And I said, no, I'm not. And she said, are you twins? And I said, no, we're 10 years apart. So my sister Edie, if you listen to this, she'll be delighted to know we look very similar. God bless my sister Martha. She doesn't look like the two of us, but they were gone by the time I was a teenager. You know, Being out of the house, they both went away to college. So I was kind of like an only kid. I didn't grow up in Sydney where they grew up. My parents moved here from Sydney, Ohio. I kind of had my own pathway. So I had two older sisters watching out for me, but I also had my own space as the youngest, the, the tag along kid. So you have that epiphany um, early in college and then you, you wrap up your collegiate career. What does life look like after you finish that up? So I actually didn't know that I would be landing in a speech communication career when I graduated. I just knew that I loved the major and I found a professor that I took like 12 hours of classes from and private study with him on a big project. And so I was naturally predisposed, but I also note to self that I did a ton of activities on campus. I was involved in Panhel. I ran a service network that I started. I did a lecture board. I just immersed myself. So I really cut my teeth on kind of leadership and organizational stuff back in Oxford. So my first job out was a fluke, like most jobs. I got a call from a friend of mine who said, hey, there's a political campaign that needs a scheduler. So this is 1990, and the statewide races were happening, and they staff up in August if you follow anything on politics. And I was like, well, I actually know this woman who's running for office. She was the mother of a friend of mine, coincidentally. And so the campaign manager met me in this dingy office at the corner of Broad and High. This is when 80s Broad was like a tenement. I mean, it was just horrible. You barely got, you were always afraid to go in the elevators and the first floor was just ratty. It was when we only had faxes. There was no, barely a pager, certainly no cell phones. And I got hired that Saturday morning. And so I got paid for two and a half months of work to be a scheduler. And so I took my principal around the community, around the state, and we lost. And what happens when you run on its slate, in this case, uh, Voinovich won, uh, they kind of take care of you. So they said, come and sit down. And so I sat in a chair. Literally, they said, sit there. And they packed this huge pile of resumes in front of me. And I was like, what do you want me to do with these? They're like, read them, put them in the system. Because this is a transition year between Celeste and Voinovich. So all the senior level positions were going to turn over. So that led to me starting in the governor's office on the first day in January of 1991. And I continued to read resumes and help with the transition for nine months. And I had no idea what I was doing. You know, I was probably 22. 
but at that point, we met every cabinet officer, every sub-cabinet officer. I was became best friends with everyone on the, in the governor's office, and we worked our tails off. I remember having like 600 overtime hours the first year. And then a job came up that I really wanted, which was to direct the philanthropy and sort of nonprofit outreach for the governor. Okay, now I'm maybe 23. Like, do I have any business doing that? But it was the year, if you may not remember, because I don't even know if you guys were born yet, um, where national service was being passed. So first it was, uh, I think, the first Bush, then Clinton, then the second Bush, actually passed a series of bills implementing and starting things like AmeriCorps. And in 1992, 1993, those bills hit the governor's desks across the country. And that initiative hit my desk as the person to have to implement it in Ohio. So I had to pass legislation, I had to create a commission, I'd hire a staff, I wrote the first grant to get the money inside the state of Ohio, we were the first state to receive any federal funds, it was a $500,000 grant, and it was a total blast, because it pulled from all my love of service and volunteering at school, and then I decided I was done. We hired all these people, and so I quit. And I remember July 4th, 1994, I got a call when I went to visit a friend of mine in New York, and this was before cell phones again. And my, I was actually visiting my cousins, and they said, hey, Ruth, there's a phone call from you. It's your boss from the governor's office. And I was like, why is he calling me? Like, what possibly could I be needed for? I, you know, I was low on the totem pole. I had a blast. It was a great four years. The governor didn't want to see me leave. And I had been doing some side work and side speech writing and side media for the first lady at the time, who did a lot of adopt schools and breast cancer awareness. And so I came back from New York and I got summoned to the governor's residence and I sat down in the den and the governor left his cabinet meeting and sat down with me, not far, and said, I can't let you go yet. And I said, but I quit and I took another job and I'm really excited and I got this big raise. And they said, he said, no, I really need you to help me through the campaign. Mrs. Voronovich needs you know, some additional help. And we were gonna hire you into this job after the election. And I was like, did anyone want to tell me that that was going to be the case? So I rescinded my offer that I had gotten to go work for City Year. And I went back inside the governor's office. I moved my stuff to the servants' quarters of the governor's residence. And I worked full time for Mrs. Warnovich as her speechwriter and chief of staff. And I ate leftovers every day in the kitchen. And then I moved to this apartment down the street. And I had another amazing, amazing two years of doing communications work and really leaning into what I loved. And then I did a national campaign um, in 96. I worked for Senator Dole's daughter. So when you're running for president, the, fa the immediate family members generally have small staffs that support them. And she had met me on a campaign stop in Columbus, and she asked me to come be her press secretary. So for 10 weeks between the convention which was in San Diego, and the election, I traveled to 78 cities and 27 states as her press secretary. And I cut my teeth on national media and AP stories and pagers going off in private planes, landing from one Nebraska city to the other, and again, had another amazing time. We would fly out of DC on Monday morning. We would do a day and a half, a city, a day and a half a day, sorry, one city, uh, for a day and a half and then go to the next. So we did about three cities a week, sometimes more, up and down, up and down. I got very used to s small private planes. And then we'd go back to DC on Friday, I'd do my laundry, take a nap, and we'd do it all over again the next week. And we lost, of course. And so I came back home and I was like, I'm done with politics. So the end of 96, I really did quit. And I got hired to go work inside uh, United Way as a leadership giving director. And because of some work I had done at the YWCA as a volunteer fundraiser, it gave me enough sort of uh, street cred to understand development, at least to get in this position. And I worked for Brian Gallagher, who still to this day is my favorite boss ever. He is now president of United Way Worldwide. Greatest guy, greatest boss ever. And I learned a ton about nonprofits and working inside one, which is what I wanted to do when I left anyway. I knew I didn't want to be a lobbyist. And a lot of people that work inside government will go out and sort of flip the door and become a lobbyist. Some of my best friends were lobbyists. It just wasn't what I wanted to do. 
And so I spent two years in United Way, and then I got the bug to go back inside communications, and I joined a small agency that needed a PR division, was growing a bigger marketing presence, and so I cut my teeth and got like my MBA, and we did three years of building a PR practice, and I loved it. And you can tell, I mean, I really do love every job I've had. I've been really fortunate, but I really got to understand a startup and what it meant to service clients and pitch and sell and organize you know, projections. And so when it closed, right after the dot-com bubble totally burst, it was January. Actually, what is it like? So it's been, so it's March. What is this, March? March 4th. Today's March 4th. Fifth. So I say that my anniversary is actually March 1st uh, of when I opened my practice, which was Milligan Communications. 2002, so 17 years ago. I just had my 17th anniversary. Congratulations. Well, thank you. And so uh, technically, I've been out on my own, in my own sort of solopreneur, smallish business for 17 years, and haven't looked back. I needed to plan my wedding and pay my bills when the agency closed, and I collected two very, very nice clients. You know what those are like, your first clients out on your own. You're just loyal to them forever. I remember my very first client, I showed up in his office. He needed some PR on an event he was doing. And by the time I left, he handed me a check for $1,000. And he said, I totally remember what it was like starting out. And I hadn't done a bit of work for him yet. I still see him today, and I, I just will never forget that gesture. And so then we did Milligan Communications for about eight years until we takes us to up to TEDx. So. That was a long journey, but hopefully he stuck with it. And you know, weaving through lots of different communication opportunities, none of which were a waste of time, all of which were just great and genius in their experience. And uh, I learned something, I still learn every day. There's a lot to unpack there, and there's a lot of story there. And there's so many things I could dig into. You know, If I had two or three hours, I could probably sit here and ask you. You might get kind of bored too, so. <laughs> I don't know, but I, 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 so, I grew up from my family, like we used to talk politics around the table as well, so I'm kind of familiar with that background and and maybe not to the same extent you are. Like my dad was a Marine, so that's where mm-hmm. that type of politics comes sure. into play. But I guess what I'm curious about is throughout all that time, you kind of stayed in the same lane of speech writing, press secretary, communications, communications but there were a couple of roles where you mentioned being a chief of staff and leading up teams and building those teams. Yeah. Do you think that kind of prepared you for building your own company or launching as a, like what you said, a solopreneur? Do you think that any of those roles in particular made you feel like, hey, when I'm, if I ever get in a tough spot, I think I can do this on my own? Yeah. I mean, I think I had some inside bosses inside the governor's office that helped and Brian Gallagher, I mean, you can point to a few leaders. I've never desired to work in a really large organization. My Berkman, which is the personality assessment that I like to refer to, you know, really characterizes me as an independent. And so that doesn't fit inside a big team. But I'm somebody that likes a lot of change. So that also doesn't focus well in me developing too big of a team because I like to keep things fresh and try different things. So I've always enjoyed that kind of collection of people that can work as like a, like a hit team on projects, make great impact, and then move on to the next. So that's my, I like that rhythm. I like the beginning, middle, and end, both of story and projects. And, and it also keeps things flexible, the opportunities to work with people in and out of their careers, you know, coming off of being a mother, going away to be a mother. I've had all of those as freelancers and small team members. So my, my version of team is what the client needs and assembling the best Sort of collection of folks to do that and you know never never have been in the the larger kind of team atmosphere partially that comes too from I'm a um, I'm insatiably curious and I need a lot of different input topics people issues problems and so this allows me to go in and out of a lot of different industries and challenges as opposed to just sticking in one lane. Does so that make sense? We were talking about team, but it, right. they're, they're really sort of two sides of the same coin. Yeah. And does that fall directly in alignment with the skill sets that you think that you were developing over that period of time? And I say that being very young in my career, but I think I can already look back and I can see you know, over the last three, four, five years, 
certain skills that I've developed through all of the different experiences and, and the kind of key points that I've taken away. Were the, the key experiences that you've taken away revolving around communications and, and that element, or was it something else? There's, there's a few different parts of communications that, you know, there's the, there's the helping to draw out the voice and story and skill set of our clients. That's something I've had to really develop in the last decade. I didn't know that I knew how to do that in terms of, you know, kind of being a contractor or being paid to do that. It's just something you naturally did inside nonprofit and naturally did with, you know, my conversations with the First Lady about her speeches getting to know her voice, understanding how to bring the best out of her. I didn't know I was doing that at the time, but reflecting back, oh, that's how I could have done better, teaching myself better methods to do that. So that's one. But I think one of the strengths that I have is in connecting people. And that's been evident in whether it's finding the right talent to help grow the business, or even just today I was with a doctor that needed a picture, a better resolution picture of something from Ohio State, I text my friend who works in the archives, three minutes later you have the picture, right? So it's, uh, I would say that my superpower is definitely in connecting people. So you overlay those, my love of communications with my, my ability to connect and you kind of, you can see how it's all come together. So then carry that connection over into TEDx Columbus. Does that come before articulation or when does that come into the picture? So. In 2009, almost exactly 10 years ago, like last week, I've told this story before, but my husband and I were watching a TED Talk, and it was the day after TED had posted the notice about TEDx. So for those of you, your listeners that don't know, TEDx is a franchise, a licensed program. You don't pay TED. TED doesn't pay you. You have to abide by a certain number of rules to be able to host a local TED event, TED-like event. And... I decided I was bored and I wanted to do something different. So I applied and I got it and then I um, partnered with Nancy Kramer and the two of us put on the first TEDx event that October. It was after that event and I looked on stage of those eight people that we were recruited, which was remarkable now that those folks showed up. <laughs> you know, like you think, gosh, is everybody gonna show up? There were probably 50 people in town that knew what TED was in 2009. They were the first 50 people to buy a ticket. And then I personally had to have a conversation with the other 250 people to tell them what it was, why we were doing it, why we thought it would be important. So when you looked at those first eight speakers, there were five of them, give or take, you know, and they kind of change in my mind of who really rocked the stage. And there were three that really struggled. You know, they came the day before, one came the day before with two full talks. You know, we gave them 18 minutes and this person had probably 30 minutes of content. You think, gosh, what could I have done better to help that person prepare? And someone else that didn't just practice enough and someone that was just too nervous for, should have had more rehearsal. You know, you kind of look back and go, gosh, I could, and I kept reverse engineering every single one of their pathways. The ones that did really well, they took themselves out of their space for a few days and really nailed their talk and their message and were able to come back in and really be fully <clears throat> engaged, whatever it was. And I looked around and I thought, who can help me do that better the next time? And that's when I was like, this is totally something that I should be doing, right? If you string all of those experiences from growing up to being a speech comm major to being a speech writer, you're like, this is what I was meant to do. Mm -hmm. And that's when we started, I gave up Milligan Communications, which largely was a mini outsourced PR and marketing practice and said, I'm not gonna do any more of that. I mean, I would get phone calls at dinner, you know, media crisis calls. I was raising, I was raising two young children and I wanted a little more <laughs> privacy after six, if you will, than mm -hmm. the full exposure to having to show up to some crisis situation for some media and then just the, the rigor of marketing schedules. And it was great and fun, but I just wanted something to do something different. So this was that thing. And I had to relearn a whole different industry because everybody that I'd worked with to that point were all in marketing and communications roles. And now I'm focused on HR training, talent management, which I have no relationships with, no exposure to, and said to spend a good two or three years sort of figuring that out before I got my, before we got our groove. What's the first thing you do 
when you realize, hey, this is what I should be doing, I think there's really something here. I mean, do you start calling different people? Do you start reaching out to people for content and help building the, the training platform? Like, how do you start making that shift? So the, the times that I have started something new, I can count them, whether it was AmeriCorps, Milligan Communications, TEDx, Articulation, or products offering, the, the partner that has helped me most in all of those situations has always been a writer. Mm -hmm. I'm a good writer, but I'm not a copywriter. I'm not a brand writer. Someone that can listen to me and help me shape what that idea is and lift it up. And that was the first thing I did in articulation. We named it, we gave it a tagline, and you throw it up there, right? Then you start to have conversations and say, and then I just started doing what I knew best. I knew how to coach. One thing I did know how to do was coach one-on-one -on -one inside public speaking. Just start doing it, right? And Governor Voinovich had a saying, <clears throat> do a good job with the job you have, and the future will take care of itself. And it might sound a little corny, but I have really lived that for the last 30 years, and it has totally served me so well, and I'm grateful for that lesson from him. And so I did a good job with the first clients, and that led to relationships, which led to then uh, other relationships and other interests, and then continuing to learn. So our curriculum that we offer really is two major buckets of classes, one around storytelling and content framing, and the other is around executive presence and style and delivery. And those are the training classes. And then you've got the coaching offerings, which is around doing TED-like work, and then executive communication. So it's the person who's met all the requirements to be the next C-suite executive, but just can't engage with an audience. I have a client like that right now. Meets all the technical, all the legal, all the leadership, but it's just not very engaging. And that's something that we can help people with. Or the lawyer who's been pigeonholed a little bit and isn't feeling the ability to sort of bring her whole self to the table and they're expecting more from her and so can, can we help to unpack that at least from a communication skills standpoint. So I can't really point to anything specific but one thing I'm an opportunist right so I'm always looking for what can I do next what can I try different what can I learn um, and that's how it's just evolved you have to be wide-eyed um, so starting with writing and then branding and then just doing it. If you spend too much time trying to figure it out, you'll never get it launched. There also seems to be a strong focus throughout your entire path of, of helping others and focusing on helping others throughout your career and then also your ability to not be fearful when there isn't already traction in a certain area. Like when you speak about the next 250 people, you had to talk to yourself to explain TEDx and, and get the word out there and begin that momentum. I think what's scary... Personally, and what I hear from other people when they're creating something is, I don't already see the market out there. How am I going to spread awareness? Can I be successful? I think you know what, you, what you've done and achieved is a testament to that. Um, but as you were in the early days of articulation, yeah. what were some of the challenges throughout that process? So you have to, you know, I'm still every day building credibility and relationships with people in this industry. Um, and it's really understanding what their need is. And if I can convince them that we can help them meet that need, then we have a conversation. I'm rarely promoting myself. I'm always trying to draw out what the need is. It's a you know, 101 sales strategy, right? But that I do enjoy, I'm an extrovert, if you haven't noticed. <laughs> uh, if I have a day in my office all day and I'm not around people, I, I, my, I have low energy. But today I've been, I left my house at you know, nine o'clock and it's 6.30 and I've been with people all day and I'm fired up. So I think that, that that helps in terms of my willingness to be forward in my conversations and, and convincing and being enthusiastic. And sometimes people have called me you know, ambitious in that like, boy, those are big things you're tackling. But I also really view that I was given some gifts that could contribute. And I feel like I have to play into those. So um, I don't know if that, that, that helps. It does, it does help. And it sparked another question in there that I wouldn't mind hearing your thoughts on. For somebody who's introverted like myself, like what you're describing, being around people all day, almost exhausts me. Correct. Complete opposite to where you're at. So as you're trying to teach someone through the skill set that you bring to the table, 
and they are more introverted versus an extrovert like you. What does that process look like? Does it change the dynamic of the coaching? So I've never actually been asked to coach someone for, to be an introvert to an extrovert. That's not a transition that we think is necessary or required. But Acacia Duncan, my colleague, could answer this better around really knowing what you need to get recharged and reserving the time uh, that that takes where I just need a good night's sleep. But she'll say, gosh, I'm with people all these days and I know I need four or five hours to recharge and really blocking that out and making sure that you're being good to yourself in that regard. Working out, eating well, sleeping well. You've just got to be a little bit more intentional. Where I, on the other hand, have to make sure that I don't exhaust myself so much because I will go f too far and I'll just be like, oh, <laughs> I'm really tired. And that's not good either because then the next day I'm, you know, I have to spend more time getting myself you know, out of bed. I, I turned 50 last year. So my my reset button is a little slower. Not too much. I still I still feel like it. But I think it's about knowing yourself and, and modulating those times when you, you may not need to, to do as much um, to reserve it for the stuff you really care about and prioritizing your calendar. We spend a lot, a lot, a lot of time on scheduling and time management, and, uh, and that plays into it. And do I have enough time to sell? Do I have enough time to coach? Do I have enough time to develop? You know, in a given week, I'll block off and look at yesterday we looked at how many hours I'm doing each of those things and saying do I still have time to work out and eat and spend time with my family mm -hmm. and I think that scheduling piece is really important I mean it's something I personally have always struggled with is because I'm not very detail oriented in my life so learning to be scheduling and detail oriented especially as I take on more responsibilities in my role it's definitely something that's a challenge uh, for Josh over there, I think working out, I don't know if you correct me wrong, but it sounds like working out is probably what fits into that reset button for you though, right? Yeah, I think it's very much a release for me to just get my mind and kind of reset my day halfway through. Like a lot of times I'll I'll stop when I'm doing enough FMX and then I have another five, six hours of going to study. And, and before I can do that, I have to go kind of flush out my mind to be able to think clear. I think part of it for me too is just, I mean, I just got to get like blood flow in my brain again and, and get away from things yeah. for a minute. So. so two parts to that I just want to point out. The growth of my current business was facilitated by one very important decision, which was that I hired a scheduler. And Kim is my right arm, my left arm. My you know She's far more than an assistant. She's part of my pitches. She's part of the follow-up. She's, you know, she's essentially a, an arm in our marketing and sales to sales initiatives, if you will, if we have, if you could call them that formal. But we're, we're tackling large groups of speakers at the same time. So we'll have, right now in our book, we probably have 14 or 15 different individual speakers, and we want to see them four times at least before a, a talk. So do the math over a six-week period. There's a lot of toing and froing and a lot of schedules and reschedules, and, but that allowed me to start to scale and know that I didn't have to look, I would look at my inbox and I'd say, oh my God, there's people that want proposals from me. And I'd been coaching or training all day and I'd come home and I'd say, oh, how could I get to that? Right? talk about being tired. And so being able to develop processes and to being able to say, these are the things that you I can delegate away, but it was the scheduling function that forced that for me. You know, others, it might be delegating marketing or delegating sales or delegating finance or, you know, I've always had a great team of freelance finance, you know, accountant, payroll. Those things are easy to outsource, um, but the helping, and that makes a huge difference. Yeah, the workout thing is, I do my best thinking in a loud room with no lights, with someone screaming at you, sorry, loud music, someone screaming at you, I solve all of my problems in the spinning room because nobody can interrupt me and I'm just with my own thoughts. It's crazy, but that's where, like if I'm really struggling with something, I've cried in there, I've struggled through things, I've, you know, I've come up with stuff I need to solve, like in that hour, I can get a ton done. Yeah. So talking a little bit about, you know, hiring a scheduler, how has your role changed since 2009? Good question. So it went from me, me training, me coaching, figuring it out. What do I, you know, who's the market? Um, what do people need? How can I make money doing it? 
to, okay, nailed that. I need somebody to help me manage my schedule to adding two more trainers and coaches who now are really taking over. <clears throat> this transition this year is uh, largely about me doing a little less training and a little less coaching, and they've really taken, stepped up, Acacia and Megan, and me doing a little bit more uh, developing a new product, looking at some new markets, um, and then also just really focused on how do I keep them filled uh, so I can do a few other things. I've got a few, I've got a few side hustles that I'm not ready to talk about that some will feed the business, some things on the side that it's just fun to pursue so that I can continue to keep it. You know, I like changing things up. So, but I will take on some of the bigger projects just as a project manager because they've just been repeat clients. I'll kick off a another huge cohort of speakers with Ford in a few weeks. And I'm really pursuing a, a, we spend a lot of time in this space. We're spending a lot of time inside data and analytics. I'm gonna be the host of the Women in Analytics Conference in two weeks, I'm facilitating a panel. We've coached almost all the speakers for the conference. It's a space I'm really passionate about. I, there's not enough women in tech, one, not enough women in data and analytics, subset and if you listen to data and analytics leaders it's where the major decisions are going to be made about futures of business and I want to see more diversity at that table we also know that folks that are in data and analytics skip our classes if you looked at the top 25 master's programs in data and or analytics or statistics whatever you want to call it only two of them have anything to do with communications, two classes inside the 25 programs. So you're graduating these ginormously smart kids out of school into these programs and they have no way to tell a story, to share an insight, to distill large amounts of information into small bits of you know nuggets and that's what we do best is content coach and storytelling coach and help people organize, which is why most of my time is spent Inside, I've spent the last day and a half over at the Med Center coaching five or six senior leaders in surgery and heart and cancer research for talks they'll give inside the university that are TED-like. How, how do you organize all of that complex stuff into a way that a lay audience can hear you and understand you? So that was a little bit of a squirrel, but hopefully that goes back to whatever first question we were no <laughs> it's I getting like late it a lot. And, and yeah we're it's, it's, <laughs> so we're there's a lot to cover we talked about meandering on this outline and we definitely were meandering but i really like it okay. a lot i like meandering it, it's funny that you mentioned diversity in analytics especially in, or sorry diversity in data analytics uh, i listened to a podcast recently from the ted radio hour on that topic in particular and it was funny one of the things they mentioned on the importance of this type of thing and having diversity on your data analytics teams was that the example they gave was Facebook's image tagger. Yeah. Right? That no, was Microsoft's. Microsoft, right. Mm -hmm. And it was they were looking at data analysis of the facial the recognition software. <laughs> bias, and it was yeah. much more likely to be able to recognize a white male's face than anybody else's. The a lawyer from Microsoft is coming to Columbus in mm -hmm. two weeks and speaking at Women in Analytics, I've been coaching her on her talk about that tagger recognition. So talk about, uh, it's fascinating. Um, Kathy O'Neill wrote the Weapons of Math Destruction book, which mm -hmm. probably was featured. Yep. Um, it's really significant. And it's a, it's a problem in how they write the algorithms. It's a challenge in how you communicate out. It's a influence. It's, there's a lot of different, um, and I'm not just there to promote women in analytics, although I'm passionate about that. I, I want all people to do well in this growing and burgeoning field. I don't know if you saw 60 Minutes a few nights ago, but it's not the best story about women in tech. It was only featured a, sorry, only featured a male who'd started code.org. Code it didn't feature all the other really spectacular women who started like Girls Who Code. And, but that in, it, in and of itself was part of the bias that like mm -hmm. CBS didn't include the women focused founders. Mm -hmm. You know, like, what's that about? So, yeah, or like the other day, like, I was reading a story about, um, uh, I think it's Habitha King, Stephen King's wife, and she was like, someone called her, like, said Stephen King and his wife donated a million dollars, and she just 
ruined whoever tweeted that story. But it's, it happens a lot where you have like two pe- famous people, but it's always like it's just small biases like that. Totally. That, like but, similar. But when you get those into your algorithms, you have there's a chance to really harm parts of the world mm-hmm. and society by that. So um, that's part of it. Yeah. It's a that's a there's a kind of raise up the awareness on that piece. Yeah, the, the algorithmic bias, right? It's yes. like super important. But yeah. sorry, completely sidetracked. No, no, we We've love gone it. way I, I, off track now. <laughs> no, Let's pull we have it. We're, it's all it's <laughs> all in this space. It's all in this space. Um, so, what are your goals then for the next three to five years with articulation? What are you looking to accomplish? And and you mentioned a little bit about making some shifts and things like that. Is there anything else on the horizon though for articulation itself? Do you see the company growing? So I see that in the next three to five years. So we are um, we're a traction EOS company. So uh, we do you know what that is? I do not. It's an operating system for entrepreneurial organizations that uh, makes you you know it's very tight operating uh, rocks goals weekly to do like if there's a system of how you organize the way you communicate about your business, also how you plan and. They just have a bunch of tools that allow you to do that because you know I never have run a I've never grown a business before per se, but we are, so we use that as a model and our three to five year goal is to add at least two or three more coach and trainers. It's those are it's a long tail onboarding because our practice is part skill and knowledge and part sort of counseling and light psychology and so to blend those as you're going through how to keep somebody focused. Today I had to coach a speaker top of her field mother of three young children supposed to be on a big stage next week with the president of the university dean of medical school totally freaked out because she's like when do i get headspace for this and am i good enough and am i you know so you have to shift into a bit of it so onboarding will be something i'll be working on and then i hope to um you know, one of the projects that I'm thinking about is how can I take what I've learned over the last 10 years, which we haven't talked much about yet, the last 10 years of coaching TED ex-speakers. We've coached probably five or 600 of them in the short talk style, as I like to say. What have we learned about storytelling cultures and practices? And how can I reveal some of that insight to others to help them level up their game? So that's my one of my explorations is how could I take that message on the road? I have two kids uh, who are teenagers, so the next three to five year goal is to successfully get them out of high school and into college, you know, and then see where that goes. So just keep doing what we're doing, and every day is a blast. I really do love what I do. So it's not like I'm looking to make a major shift. I want to keep in the same lane and keep establishing ourselves as uh, sort of the expert in that area. So probably a perfect transition to, and, and what have you learned over the last 10 years of, of coaching these individuals? What sticks out the most to you over that tenure? So the first thing is it's hard. Blaise Pascal said, I would have written you a short letter if I had had more time. He was a famous physicist and mathematician from the 1800s. And giving a short talk on a complex subject is difficult. And anyone that thinks it's easy, isn't going to do the hard work. So that's the first thing I've learned. Just today, again, I was with somebody who's never given a short talk like this. He is top of his field. He was just recruited here with his whole lab from another university. You know, he's got a chairmanship, a directorship, you know, all these titles. And he looked at me, he said, I've never done anything like this before. And it's sort of humbling when you're at the top of your research or um, professorships or executive careers and you've got to nail 10 minutes. So it's a blast to help people organize and think. So the second thing I've learned is um, I have to be one step ahead of where they are in their thinking. And so I have to learn their subject pretty fast, enough that I understand it so that I know where I want them to go. They may not show up at the right place at any particular moment, but I know where I need them to end up. And then uh, the next thing is Practice, 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 but practice in certain ways that they haven't done before. Like I will tell everyone they've got to record themselves. We've did that with you guys and listen back. They have to think about their talks as short collections of stories. So I'm retraining their brain that these aren't reading bullet points. So there's a lot of tools and tricks we'll use to get them on the stage with no notes, no podium. Today's conversation was no teleprompters. (laughs) 
no notes on your confidence monitor and it's just you kind of naked with that audience and how does how do you get ready for that so um really listening to where they are right i had three speakers in a row today they were all wildly different places of their preparation they all have to be ready by next friday so really pulling out what's what's the greatest need and helping to give them some tools back so being present i think is the other thing that i've learned a lot about not just like it's not just a you know, it's not a checklist. And it's learning to be vulnerable, letting them be vulnerable, and making them feel safe. So when we're in that, in that relationship and in that dialogue, it's okay to make tons of mistakes, but I will tell them, look, next Tuesday, you're gonna be in front of 20 peers doing a final content review, and this is what's gonna happen. So be prepared psychologically for that moment. And then you get a break because the rest of it will be easy. <laughs> That's really your heavy lift is over that the review with your peers, because when you get to the event in a week, it's those people want to hear you. They're interested in what you have to say. These people want to critique you and give you feedback and make you better. Those are way different audiences. So it's really understanding what the audience needs, and what the speaker needs, and finding that opportunity to continue to communicate to them. That's taken a long time to understand and understand how to do well. So that's my, one of my pullaways. And then the other big one is around companies that use us for TED-like trainings, understanding what the culture looks like around promoting great storytelling. And I'll just use one quick analogy and then we can. So my father played chess and he passed that down to my 12-year-old son. And my son's been playing for eight years. And I've never been able to watch a chess game because you can't watch chess tournaments. You know, They like lock them in a gym and you have to go sit with the other parents. And, and so, but there's four principles of chess, time, materials, space, and development. And all, on all those chess tournaments that I sat thinking about what he was doing and my work, the storytelling culture has the same components. First, you have materials, whether it's your pieces you play or the content that you're working with. The next is the time that you commit to actually leaning in to try to refine and organize it. And then the space, this you know, the headspace that it takes to actually get your head around it and give yourself license to be wrong and, and then do that development work, which just means that I'll put myself in front of 20 peers to get feedback or I'll go and I'll, I'll crank the wheel several times before that talk is done. And those are the four things that I think make any speaker successful. And I, can, I continue to sort of overlay those time and time again. And those are the, so that's what I'm pulling through this year is to sort of talk more about storytelling culture. Everybody should know what storytelling does and why it's successful by now because there's so many books out there and so many people talking about it. But really, it's what do you as a manager, what do you as a leader, how do you set up your people to be great storytellers? So that's, that's what I'm playing with this year. We mentioned earlier a little bit of the, the blurred lines between you know the coaching aspect from a psychological standpoint and then the communications and your presence and how you're controlling the room. So for somebody who's, you know, you mentioned it being 25%, one out of four of those elements, if your headspace tends to take up more percentage than most people, and that's the hardest thing you're having to overcome, what does that look like when you're working with some of these people? Are some of them just not able to overcome that? So you know that there, those four things sort of are, are fluid, right? So sometimes it's uh, uh, somebody just showed up with a 74-page deck Right, it was an it's an hour talk. It's not a typical talk we coach, but he really wanted help. It's a presidential address in front of two thousand people at a conference, and he just needed a partner to help him through finding some better story and get it organized. So his headspace is one hundred percent in there, but his content was taking up ninety percent of it. So, but the other speaker, her headspace is needs a lot of room. She doesn't have, so I make it easy on the content. I say to her, let's keep this really simple. You've got three simple stories to tell. They're not as simple as I may seem, but I, I'm communicating to her, look, you know these. Let's I have some frameworks that I use. I map them out, whether it's visual or just words. I make her feel confident that, oh, she's got the content down. So the rest of her focus can be on finding the headspace to practice and do the development. So content doesn't become the dominant feature. Sometimes people have to go and do collection. like. They got an idea, but they actually haven't collected the data and story to support it. That's a lot of material that they need to go find. 
Other people come with mounds of it, and they're collectors. And at some point, I will tell them, everything you need is on the table. We're just going to rearrange a little bit. We might throw some stuff off. We might cl clip a few things here and there, but don't go bring me anything more. Like your, your thrift store room is way too big because we're going to have a sale here soon. Um, so does that make sense? Like, so depending upon, and that's par partially like we go to where the client is. I don't have a predefined expectation that, that those are, that's a really good question. I hadn't thought about that, that they're in equal parts, but all four of those things matter. We'll tell a corporate client if they have an internal speaker that's speaking at an event, if that speaker is traveling internationally the two weeks before, we will tell the client, pick someone else. There is no headspace and there is no time when you're traveling internationally. If you have a little domestic trip, but the international, we've tried to coach international travelers, it's a disaster. Because you know you get delays, and then you've got jet lag, and then you've got their work product, and you've got family, and it just gets in the way. So that's part of the coaching back to say you don't have the space; like it's it's not even existent. So does that help? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I think I'm I was curious about the balance between you know if somebody just can't bring any additional to the table, but for you allowing them to understand that that is okay, yeah. we're going to make up for it in other areas. That's right. Makes a lot of sense. So that's what that's what we do, and then sometimes we have to say. Maybe this is a talk for another time. Because a lot of times we are working on a consequential talk, like something in front of a large audience that has a moment, might be recorded, might be a town hall, might be a, I got an email right, right as I came in here, there's a client that's got six inside speakers, they do quarterly leadership talks, we've been coaching all six of them. One of them got a senior leader resigned, another initiative got poured on her from a new acquisition, and something personal happened. And she rose, she, she waved the white flag today and said, I, I don't have any space. And so we'll say, you know what, it's great. You still have a great story. Let's hold on to it. Let's just sort of freeze it. And you can do it next quarter. And it's not that you're not going to be able to do it, but the time and space you need will just be at another time. My dear father, who I've referenced several times today, had one of my other favorite quotes, which was, you can do everything you want to do in the world, just not all at the same time. And I think that's important to remember. It's tough because, especially for people who are enthusiastic about what they're doing, you got to remember sometimes to take a step back and say, hey, can I handle all this right now? Mm -hmm. Is this too much? Uh, so I really like that phrase. Uh, probably a good place to pivot towards some of our last questions of the show. One of them I wanted to ask was focused around, you've kind of meandered your way through a couple different things and found something you really enjoy. And I think that a lot of young professionals and entrepreneurs struggle with that. Right, finding that thing that they really believe in and enjoy and, and love doing when they go to the office. Do you have any tips for them? How can people continue to find ways to try different things and find the career and the path that they really enjoy? I learned a great tip. So I learned something every day from my speakers. Um, there's a woman named Jody Glickman who's become a colleague and a friend of mine. She's, um, she's written about how do you do that at work? How do you get to love? And her philosophy is uh, don't try to love the work, try to get the work to love you. So doing things like finding opportunities, looking around, being open, being curious, being inquisitive, finding good in people, knowing that a lot of things that are difficult are in initially meant with good intent, not negative. So when you grab onto that, oh, that didn't go well at work, what could have been that someone else is having a bad day. So she, she helps, she's helped, not that I needed a ton of framing in this, but she gave a lot of definition to how do you how do you lean into that if it's not the perfect job for you and I don't know I feel really lucky because I probably I mean I've been spending 30 years building those muscles of loving the work that I do and just if something doesn't feel right don't do it you know don't ask me to do something that I can't do I am not good at the books I tried my account used to show up every month and fix everything that I used to do I would be like, no, I can do this. I can do my own QuickBooks. I can do my own books. And she was so kind, and she would let me sort of, she would humor me. And I finally realized I was paying her to undo my mistakes. And I thought, that's stupid. So you kind of get rid of that. And that like relieved so much tension. So paying attention to how people around you are, you know, like she was being kind, but she should have been probably tougher with me to say, Ruth, you just don't have this skill. Uh, but I don't mind numbers. 
I don't mind the repetitive nature of reports and dashboards and I enjoy that stuff. I just probably am not the best to physically do it myself. So really appreciating where your stress points are. And this is the thing that I pull from the work that I've done with um, the Berkman, which is there's always needs you have at work, knowing what they are and understanding when you feel stressed, it's because your needs aren't being met. And so when I feel stressed about something, it's because I usually just don't have enough time to do something. And being able to then say, what can I delegate away to be able to do the things I have to do? So whatever that looks like to you, whatever stresses, if I said to you guys, what stresses you out most, it's usually because a need isn't being met. And if the young folks can appreciate that intersection, then they can lean into the things that they really do love and find uh, a place for those needs to be met. And I'm not talking about like Starbucks every day and you know flexible hours, but whether it's change or independence or having better direction or having a plan or not having a plan, knowing those things about yourself make work so much better. And then you can lean into the content and the development of whatever you're doing. It's kind of the way I've looked at it. And I think what I've found personally from my journey, what made it tough sitting down with so many successful people over the, the tenure of Conquering Columbus is that everybody that we've talked to who's reached a high level has seemed to find you know, kind of their niche and their state of flow and what they're pursuing in their life. So you, we would sit here on the other end and then constantly I'd walk away and say, why can't I find that yet? Why is it not happening? And what I found is that in order to lean in, for me personally, and I, I, I would assume it's probably like this for a lot of other people, it, it needed and required a tremendous amount of action for me to continue to do things and then feel out how they feel. I couldn't just think about it and right, come right, to the right, right answer. Sure. Right. So, and your story's filled with a tremendous amount of action. I mean, you explored a lot of different paths. It sounds like you were always taking on additional initiatives. You mentioned 600 hours of overtime work. First year, but what else did you have to do when you were 22? Yeah. But yeah. I also think that there's one other sort of thing that we haven't talked about, was that I actually was a really um, poor student, uh, both in middle and high school and not a great student in college. I didn't develop the study skills and the study method, and there's a whole other story about why that happened. Uh, which I reflect on and understand and have actualized about it. But because of that, like I was kind of scrappy. It, people are shocked to hear this when they tell me this, but I was like, well, that's just, but I leaned into those other actionable activities and to, you know, seeing tangible results in service and being on a committee and contributing back to my college or my community. And that gave me great satisfaction and great input that I was moving things forward as opposed to relying on a grade. And we talk, colleagues and I talk a lot about having to retrain women in particular who are graduating from college to retrain them to be successful in work. There was a story that came out a few weeks ago in the New York Times about how girls do better in school and boys do better in work. It's because so much of what we're focused on is getting people to get to the four point or get to the, but we're not t telling them sort of how to navigate the group project in a way that will work for them in the work life later. My daughter is constantly putting strict, strict boundaries in her freshman class about when they're doing projects, what work she's doing and what work the kids or the boys are doing. <laughs> she doesn't want to do their work and she's not going to do their work, right? So she's learning those like, hey, I'm not going to get credit for your work, so why should I do it? Mm -hmm. But relearning those things. And I didn't have to relearn that because I never learned to be a great student. And so therefore, mm -hmm. I learned all of my lessons were out of the classroom. And I think that's important to appreciate about that kind of like hustle that I carry still to this day and uh, has made a lot of those things successful because I've never really cared about the grade. Well, I think what's scary, too, is that some people, you know, they get extremely depressed about it. And you hear about people across the world that just aren't finding a place where they feel like they're getting a lot of energy from or a place that they're passionate about. And then you hear, you know, other successful people say, follow your passions. And some people, I think, confuse that with, you know, I'm passionate about not having a lot to do in a day, so do I quit my job? Or what does that look like? Yeah. And identifying that that passion is rooted in taking a massive amount of action until you find something that you're doing that you say, wow, this is awesome and I enjoy this and I could see myself doing this for a crazy amount of hours and maybe that doesn't matter to me um, is, is an interesting concept. I, I like to use the example of my husband who's an outdoor guy, but he used to work in a library for 20 years. And so how do you find your passion and how do you find your interest? Well, he would ride his bike to work. And on the lunch breaks, he'd take walks and listen to his favorite history podcasts. 
because his literary interest was just as high as his outdoor interest. So he found a way to make that work, which I hate being outdoors. Like being out, I, no, 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 let me, let me correct that. I love being outdoors. I love hiking. We have, you know, a rustic cabin that we go to that has only three seasons in West Virginia. Like I love being at a river and rafting. I hate working outdoors. It bores the tears out of me. And so knowing what your interest is then can fuel that passion is the, is the correlation. So if I know that I shouldn't be planting, then I'll go inside and I'll, I like how it looks. <laughs> Fortunately, my husband loves to plant and I love looking at nice plants. And so I think, I think it's rooted in a basic sort of interest inventory of like, what, do you, what, what, what were you born with? Not what have you developed, but like you're all born with a set of interests based on early, early years. And I think it's knowing what those are. And then that kind of helps to build that passion because then you get experience and feedback and positive reinforcement and it feels good. And yeah, cause uh, it would not feel good if you put me in a garden tomorrow. Like I'm, I'm not that person. So does that yeah. help? Yeah, that helps a lot. Uh, that really helps. I think it pivots well into our last question of the show. It's centered around the theme here on Conquer and Columbus. Yeah which is live uncomfortably. Oh yeah. Okay. And without telling you too much about why we chose that phrase in particular, what do you think of when you hear the phrase, how do you apply it to your life and career? <laughs> so I grew up what I considered to be middle class, but in, in hindsight, pretty white privilege and have really explored a lot of that recently. And so one thing that I do today is that I try not to go to anything where there's only white people on a panel. Like I won't go to an all-white male panel. I'm, you know, I'm intentional about exposing myself to different points of view and cultures. And ten years ago, that would have been uncomfortable for me. But today, it's like that's just like I won't do it otherwise. So, um, and not taking anything away from my two guests or my hosts. I was gonna today. say we're lucky to have you here today. <laughs> my two hosts today, but I, you know, that there's uh, having curated TEDx for ten years. I totally understand what it takes to get a diverse group on a stage. It's not that hard. You have to have diverse people around the room picking who goes on the stage. That's the, that's the solution. It's very simple. You have to reach out to people who may not be in your lane and in your community and invite them in and be vulnerable to say, we're going to co-own this together. And in doing so, I've met some of the most challenging, storied people I could have ever coached or met. Teresa Flores, who was human trafficked as a teenager, Frederick from Rwanda who got his arms cut off in the Rwandan genocide. And the list can go on and on and on. Coaching and really being intimate in their stories has been very uncomfortable over the years, but you put yourself aside. This is nothing to do with me. Whenever you're nervous on stage, it's because you're making it too much about yourself. When you're on stage hosting or working at a TEDx or it's about the audience and it's about getting the speakers to connect with them. I'm really the guide. We've talked about that. Like I have, I have, I'm not the hero in that story. The speakers are the hero. The audience is the hero, depending on which way you look at it. So the uncomfortableness is being intentional that you're going to be okay if you look outside of your normal lanes and, you know, the movies we pick and can't eat very diverse. I have some food issues in our house, but saying that I, I don't have to only be in my white privileged lane, uh, and it makes our lives so much more interesting and richer, and my children, I think, have really benefited from that. I think about them and the conversations we have and the not turning off NPR when there's an uncomfortable story in the, it's tough. Raising teenagers today is really hard. Mm. People actually will say Ruth loves to make her clients uncomfortable. That's one of my sort of sub-brands, because I know that growth comes from that moment of being uncomfortable, and the two of you guys experience that too, so. Perfect, well Ruth, I think that's a great place to wrap up the show. Thanks so much for joining us and telling your story. Thank you for having me, this has been a blast. Yeah, we appreciate it, and Conquerors, thanks a lot for tuning in. That was Ruth Milligan, she is the founder and managing director of Articulation. If you wanna learn more about them, check out the show notes. Really appreciate you guys tuning in every week to listen, and uh, hope you guys enjoyed that episode as always. We hope you learned a lot. We'll talk to you next week. Hey, Conquerors, that's it for the episode today. Hope you guys enjoyed that episode and learned a lot. If you did, make sure to leave a like, share us on Facebook with your friends. 
We really appreciate all your support. And every time you share our podcast or leave a review on iTunes, it really does help us out. Before we let you go, we want to take one last moment to thank all of our incredible sponsors here. And that's going to start with FMX. FMX is a cloud-based facilities maintenance and management software founded and headquartered right here in Columbus, Ohio. There's a lot of competitors in this space, but FMX has made a name for itself, become the fastest-growing facilities maintenance and management software on the market on behalf of its extreme ease of use and tailored-fit approach to its clients. They serve industries ranging from education to property management, manufacturing, fast casual, and more. If you want to check out more, you can go to gofmx.com. Conquering Columbus is also brought to you in part by the Sundown Group. The Sundown Group is an Ohio-based nonprofit helping connect entrepreneurs to everything they need, including investors, mentors, capital, and talent through business pitch events, workshops, and classes throughout the state. And you can get more information on the web at sundownrundown.org. And our last sponsor is Small Biz Cares. Small Biz Cares is a nonprofit founded by socially conscious community leaders here in Columbus, and their goal is to connect, mobilize, and inspire small businesses to create lasting positive impact in our community. And Small Biz Cares members have the unique opportunity to join like-minded businesses to raise money for great causes, participate in large-scale volunteer efforts, and improve educational opportunities for youth in our community. To get your small business involved or to learn more, visit smallbizcares.org. That is smallbizcares.org. Finally, if you've ever wondered what it takes to start your own podcast, we're here to help. We're putting together a podcast startup package with our recommendations and some of the key lessons we learned over the past two years of podcasting. You can sign up by heading over to our website, conqueringcolumbus.com. And while you're there, don't forget to give us a like on Facebook and be sure to subscribe and share Conquering Columbus wherever you get your podcasts. You could drop me anywhere on the planet in any environment and I might get, you know, my head kicked in in the beginning, but I'll find a way to survive. I'll find a way to get the job done. Yeah, there's a little doubt, but you know what? Once again, I think of that guy in my ear. I think about stepping up to the stage. I think about the challenge. Like, I've lost sometimes, but I've won more than I've lost. And so, like, I bet on me any day. Choosing greatness. Greatness doesn't choose you. You know, you have to choose it. And, you know, it's hard. I think there was a hunger in me. There was a desire just to make a difference. There was a desire to not just be status quo, a desire to not be average. This is Conquering Columbus.